Welcome to Forge Comics. Your one-stop shop for discovering more about comic book characters, stories, and general analysis of these epic tales. So join us on this journey across mediums and multiverses to learn more about the amazing world of comics. I'm Trey. This is JoJo. And I'm Petey. roll into six things you may have missed this is a new segment we're going to roll out here when we do some marvel breakdowns or any other movies some kind of trivia easter eggs Uh, one of these my personal favorite after a week of binging at the beginning of the movie it opens very innocently with shang and his his friendship with katie and they're on kind of a double date with friends and he's telling a story and he says like dude i'm not korean and in the movie that doesn't really make any, you know, that doesn't seem like anything, but it's actually an homage to where Simu Liu, the actor who portrays Shang-Chi, gets his start on a sitcom set in, in Toronto, and his family is Korean, and they run a convenience store. And I've basically binged the entire show this week, loved it, loved him. He's actually, he's actually hilarious. I think I watched the movie, I went and binged the show, and then I watched the movie again, and I felt like he could do so much more than they even had him do in the movie he was very stoic in the movie which not knowing the actor not knowing the character made sense Uh, moving forward i want to see way more of him and katie in there just day to day where they were kind of hanging out and eating and telling stories i think he's he would kill in those moments so highly recommend kim's convenience it's on netflix five seasons super funny show and similarly user is a great actor um so I do want to talk about, I, I want to go a little bit deeper with this, but there's several homages to Jackie Chan, the jacket fighting during the bus fight and the movie Rumble in the Bronx, the scaffolding fight on the side of the building in China with Rush Hour. And there's massive, massive significance to this, actually, because w- what makes this movie so good as well is, um, obviously, we talked we talked a little bit about how they portray the the Chinese culture. And one of the elements in Chinese culture, and especially in Chinese film, is Chinese opera. And that's very much the the style of um, the wire, the wire fighting, like what you see in in uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, there's a whole element um, in the Chinese culture where they use that wiring. And some people don't really enjoy it because it seems a little over the top. It seems a little too... Um, elegant and too dancey um, but I thought they kind of married the the street fighting with that very very well and that's actually another kind of um, call out I guess to Jackie Chan because that's where he started his career was in the Chinese opera um, where he did those things and then he became a really famous stuntman through that and then became a, a great great actor so I thought it was kind of cool how there was like layers to to kind of those call outs with with the most obvious one being like the jacket and the fight scene where you like, you know, tucks it really hard. Um, that was really, really big. So, um, yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So the one thing I want to go over too is, uh, another cool cameo that they threw in for the MCU, uh, pretty recent one with some black widow stuff going on. I'll break that down. So as they're walking into the big main cage fight, you see kind of those side fights that are like the low budget, smaller fights, less bedding. Um, in one of the little cages or rooms, they have one of the extremist soldiers 
which is basically one of those chemical engineered soldiers from Iron Man 3. And he's actually fighting um, a member of the Black Widows, who obviously we know from Black Widow just left the Red Room. They're kind of all over the place. We don't know what they're doing right now. So it makes sense that there's a Black Widow kind of fighting in this underground fight scene with all of her skills. So I thought that was a cool little cameo that they threw in. Um, there's a lot more of them in all of those little cages, but that was the one that I thought was most relevant to the MCU, and I thought it was cool to bring him in. A bit of a slap to the face when the guy says, oh, these are just like the, these are the <laughs> lower tier fights, especially considering how like over the top the fighting scenes in Black Widow were and all the elements involved in that. So uh, to- definitely brought that that movie down as far as <laughs> they're making they're making they put that scene in after the black widow lost yeah these are the straight to disney plus fights all <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, return on investment oh man that's brutal um sorry scarjo these are uh, yeah these are only things that you'll hear on this podcast um <clears throat> so the other thing as well is the comment Comments made by um, Shang's aunt indicating that Talo exists in a pocket dimension in another universe entirely. So obviously, um, even though it was kind of like a, a small remark and easily could have been just glossed over, I think that just kind of gives an element to things that they can bring up in the future, right? Tie-ins uh, just gives Marvel a lot more ability to kind of shift and and pivot in various directions um, just by mentioning that so yeah and then another cool cameo that i liked a lot so that vlogger that we see in the bus scene is actually not his first appearance in the mcu so his name is clev and he was actually in um spider-man homecoming and he's on the bus and basically films spider-man and tells him to do a flip so I thought it was kind of funny that this random vlogger who was in Spider-Man is now basically same exact position. He just is a lucky vlogger. I mean, right place, right time. So now he's probably famous because he has two superheroes in his vlog. But I thought it was a cool little camera that they threw in the exact same vlogger from Spider-Man Homecoming. Which I makes present- sense as to why he was so calm. Because he's just like, well, I've been <laughs> in this situation before. <laughs> I personally I felt like it was like a little bit of a shot at like online influencers. So he's like he's like <laughs> he's clearly like not an athlete. Let's just put it that way. He's very he's physically not in shape to be he's not a martial artist. And he's like, and I did a little uh, martial arts as a kid, so I'm gonna try to get grade this fight. <laughs> it's like that is so spot on with basically just this whole generation of of media influence social media influencers, which I think I get a kick out of. I also wanted to talk about in our final Easter egg. Several of the fantasy creatures that appeared in the movie were were very accurate to Chinese mythology, which was, again, a, just another kind of homage in general to the Chinese culture, the Chinese cinema. And they did a really good job, I mean, in my opinion, of being faithful. But we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. But it seems to be a, a pretty wide um, opinion that they did a very good job and stayed faithful. And, and a couple of those creatures I just wanted to mention here were were the big giant dragon dogs from Talo. And those were... I believe they're called Lin Sao. And I'm just going to do my best to pronounce these. Uh, um, the deer horse <laughs> that Trevor Slattery <laughs> comments on in front of the in front of the car is called a Kilin. 
And then the nine-tailed fox that they see immediately upon entering Talo is actually inspired by the same creature as the fox Pokemon. And is, uh, it's just a nine-tailed fox. It had a name that I'm, I can't even attempt. And then Morris himself, and he, he is what's called a Tichung. So. so really quick, I knew I recognized him from something else. And that same creature makes an appearance in Avatar The Last Airbender in the spirit world. So it's uh, apparently a big deal. And I think that kind of representation of the different mythical and legendary creatures in, in Chinese mythology is a great way to segue into Marvel's portrayal of Chinese culture as a whole. And I'll be honest, this was a this was pretty tricky for Marvel to pull off. Um, just starting with the basics, you deal with the main villain of Shang-Chi. And historically, that villain is is his father. Uh, who, in similar to Wen Wu, is an evil overlord, but he goes by the name of Fu Manchu. And for years now, this character has been widely criticized as being an offensive stereotype of Chinese culture. And it was such a concern for Marvel that Kevin Feige and his team actually put together a list, which it's leaked a little bit, but the full list hasn't leaked yet. But it was called the Wen Wu list, and it was a list of stereotypes and things that they wanted to avoid representing in the movie, specifically with, with this character. The main one that I want to talk about today is something that's called the Yellow Peril. And this is the stereotypical idea that Chinese characters of villainous, villainous origins tend to do a lot of the same things. Now, there's three kind of main pillars that get reused time and time again. One of those is their use of magic and sorcery that even the fictional Western cultures in their universe don't understand and are scared of. The second is being kind of unilaterally obsessed with world domination and really having no other goal or complexity to their to their their actions. And the third is is lagging character development, really being kind of like a Rasputin type evil sorcerer who doesn't have an origin, doesn't have a family, doesn't have anything that that helps you to relate to him, just being kind of an evil creature. And I think we can all see why that would be problematic when you're specifically portraying whether it's a James Bond villain or something like that. And you're basically using China and their culture to make a character scary. And to combat this stereotype, a lot of care was put into the creation of Wenwu as a character. And they basically found a way to combat each of those three stereotypes um, one to one. So the first being to combat this idea that there was that Fu Manchu over the years was just a magical sorcerer that no one understood and were terrified of, they gave Wenwu a fantastical weapon that was grounded in the idea that anyone could wield it. So those rings, while being mystical and fantastical, don't really stand out in the Marvel Universe. There's plenty of things with more power than that. Mjolnir, the Tesseract, each stone individually. And we also see several other people control and use the rings indicating that if they were to fall into someone else's hands they would be equally capable of using them so that kind of checks that box the next was how explicitly stated his goals were at the beginning of the movie um, during the expository introduction his goal was explicitly stated to be power and wealth but never world domination his actions were always in the shadows attempting to operate as a wealthy and influential private organization but not attempting to seize political power in this fictional history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is a far cry from being obsessed with world domination. He had his own goals and he went about them on his own and he would influence things that he wanted to influence, but never was trying to just straight take, take over the world. And the third thing where they found that these characters are historically very difficult to relate to and lack character development 
Wen Wu was unique as a villain in that there's a lot of depth there. And and we mentioned this scene where he's having dinner with his family and Katie. And he talks to Katie and gently almost teaches her a little bit about Chinese culture, teaches her about the significance of a name in, in their culture. And all of the actions that we see on screen kind of in modern day Wenwu, right? It's indicated that there was a change when he met his wife. And all of his actions from that point on were were out of love and out of anguish for loss, right? I mean, even the knocking down the gate to open up, you know, the soul-eating mega dragon was out of an action of love, of grief, and trying to bring back his his beloved wife. Whether his actions were justified, whether he was evil or not, that's something that the audience can relate to, which goes directly in contrast to kind of the problematic history of Fu Manchu. So in my opinion, based on my research, they did a fantastic job of kind of completely avoiding those tropes that they that they themselves have fallen prey to in the past and do you guys have any thoughts on that yeah i'll just re-emphasize what i said earlier that i think Wenwu was a very well-developed character and i think the fact that they don't make him the main villain in the end was a very strategic choice to show that this is different from a typical uh, stereotypical son fighting his father disgracing his legacy type story that you would see with the Fu Manchu type stories because that's very much the stories you would get from the comics in the 80s and 70s so I I applaud them for strategically making that decision and I, obviously to do this kind of story and to make it resonate with not just Chinese not the Chinese culture but to us as well who probably aren't as familiar with that culture um it makes us more interested in some of those really cool mythological aspects. Yeah, completely agree. Those are, those are both great points. Another aspect of Marvel's portrayal of Chinese culture is this, this very deep rooted theme of yin and yang. And there's a lot of themes in play in this movie, but I would argue that the, the largest among these is this concept of yin and yang and and it's involved in several levels in this movie and i want to talk about first what yin and yang is and, and most people would recognize the symbol it's a circle with kind of two teardrop shapes that one one portion is black one portion is white and within each portion is the opposite color and kind of a small drop so the white teardrop has a small black drop and the black teardrop has a small white circle as well and what's interesting here is the yin which is the black half uh, typically represents uh, femininity, cool emotions, it's uh, darkness, femininity, passivity, while the yang, the white half, represents kind of more masculinity, warmth, energy, motion, loudness, and light. So each of those kind of has their exact counterpart represented on the other half of the yin and yang. And what's what's intended by this symbol is the idea that you need both halves and neither on their own is sufficient. And there's a, this is in play in several elements of the movie. Prior to meeting Yingli, who's Shang's mother, uh, in his thousand years of, his video montage of kind of his thousand years of domination, Wenwu wore exclusively black. When they first met, he's wearing black and she's wearing white. And upon marrying and having children, Wenwu actually began to wear brighter colors, only reverting back to wearing black uh, after she passes kind of in that first act of the movie. At this point, Shang-Chi was raised exclusively by his father who out of grief and loss resorted back to using the rings striving for power and wealth again 
and raised the kids his own way. There was a there was there were scenes where as a family they did normal things. They played DDR, they watched movies, they fell asleep on the couch, which juxtaposed harshly against when he raised them as a single father. They were trained to be assassins, they were beaten, they were basically raised as soldiers. And we see the results of this one-sided kind of parental guidance throughout Shang-Chi's life kind of coming to a culmination when his aunt shows him that he needs to kind of open up and use both sides of his his familial heritage. And this is a this is a, a thought process that his mother had explained to him prior to passing as well, that both his mother and his father existed inside of him. And in order to be successful, he was going to need to access both parts of of, of his personality. Ultimately coming to a kind of a culmination when he takes out the dragon uses using both fighting styles. That phrase that we hear over and over again, it's almost like a trope where it's just like you have to just be yourself and accepting yourself, accepting and in in his sense, it's accepting his dad's side and accepting his mom's side, which then again just puts more emphasis on the yin and yang and how he's able to kind of balance both in accepting the I guess the dark side of his father and the the light of his mother. Yeah, I think the yin yang aspect is perfect for this movie and for the scene particularly when um when Wu and uh Shang-Chi's mom meet for the first time and they kind of have that dance slash fight just outside of Talo. Um with the mom and the dad it works so well because you do see that perfect kind of dance between them of this fluidity between their different cultures and their different views on life come together. So I think it worked really well in that aspect. I will say um it was a little more awkward when it was the son and the dad that felt a little weird when it was kind of embracing that same type of dance choreography. Talk um, about the talk about the gaze when they're yeah. gazing at each other as in they slow as motion. They yeah, that was a bad that was a bad choice. But I don't want to take away from the fact that the yin and yang aspect of this is amazing, and you do see it the balance throughout the whole movie. I but also as we're having this discussion, it makes me think just how prevalent this is in a lot of other shows that we discuss on this podcast and we can talk about my hero academia with Todoroki. we can talk about avatar last airbender there's a lot of this balance that comes into play um and so i think it's cool that shang chi just another perfect example of that culture being represented fun fact for Petey, the little kid younger kid who plays uh katie's little brother is the guy who's cast as zuko oh did not know that I did a lot of research and very <laughs> my real job today. So <laughs> it's packed full of turkey jokes and Shang-Chi fun facts. Um, those are great points. I, I do want to point out, I love the Marvel Universe. Love it. We'll talk about the Marvel Universe the way, maybe more fondly than our parents talk about Star Wars. And that's a whole nother debate. But I think this will define like our our teenage to kind of adulthood years that said i can't think of more than i don't know if i can think of another marvel movie that kind of picked a theme like this and went with it almost like a almost like an indie film would where you have a very apparent very deep-rooted theme that that may be completely ignorant i mean there's there's usually some kind of message but i don't know that it's 
really in this thematic vein that we're getting with Shang-Chi, which for me, I think is a direction they need to go in. I think it's difficult. I mean, a lot of the movies, you can't do as deep of a dive with the symbolism and the culture and... Yeah, there. I, I think it, it it really does depend on the story and the characters that are involved. I think this one was set up the best way in order to. I think what's cool about you know the not just Chinese but uh, Far Eastern culture is there's so many cool legends and symbolism and. Um, I don't know. They're they're basically parables, right? And the way that they're very almost biblical, where it's it's like these great stories, but then have just such deep, deep, deep rooted meaning to it that is very, very applicable. Um, and so I think it works very well with Shang Chi, whereas it may not work so well with other other characters. I think that's fair. I think, yeah, I don't think it's fair to expect the Marvel universe at all at all points to dive into cultural themes. But like I would say, this sets the bar for Miss Marvel. There should be some deep Pakistani, you know, cultural goals and things to portray there. And and anything less would be a disappointment. You could say with uh, Black Panther, I thought they did a good job culturally with Af- African culture and and. Um, yeah, elements of that. So I thought that that was well done, but I don't think it was as deep, deeply rooted as this was. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a he's from a fictional country that might that might. Be yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard. I don't know. I, I actually would love to break that down in a similar fashion. I'm sure there's plenty to work with there. With with kind of to close out the yin and yang concept, one of my personal favorite quotes that I think applies perfectly to this concept is. Uh, it is said without any virtue when taken to an extreme can become a vice. And I think that speaks perfectly to how Sean can fulfill his, you know, his greatest potential if he takes the best from his father and the best from his mother and he combines them. And if he leans too far into any one aspect, no matter how good, whether that's being driven, whether that's being, you know, willing to stick up for yourself any of those things when taken completely out of proportion can ultimately become flaws and i think the yin and yang concept has given me a lot to think about especially with this kind of quote framing it as it is so i personally loved the theme loved how deeply rooted it was and how it kind of fit at every level of this movie and yeah if if you guys don't have other comments i want to move on to a couple of other cultural kind of acknowledgements anything else then I think something just tied to that is kind of ignorance and pride, which we can all relate to um, a very watered down and simpler version of that quote is that, you know, uh, a lot of times our strengths become our weakness because we lean way too far into them that it can expose us to, to other liabilities, right? Whether that be in our own character or just, situations that we put ourselves in so yeah i like that yeah totally agree so with regard to chinese culture there's there's also some more service level stuff that i wanted to kind of evaluate and i want to cite 
just an excellent video that I that I watched as I was researching this, and it's by Dr. John Tan on YouTube. It's called uh, "Is Shang-Chi Culturally Offensive?" Uh, Shang-Chi: A Review by a Chinese Sociologist, and he is a, a sociologist, and he is Chinese, and he broke down a lot of the kind of elements that are included in this, and and I want to break down a couple of them and just see if you guys thought of anything else that might be worth investigating. Uh, one of the first things he did was go back through Wen Wu's kind of fictional timeline. And, you know, if he's really been around for a thousand years, does that check out with kind of the enemies that he was fighting and the way that his army was dressed and the weapons that they were using? And this Dr. John Tam actually found out that these things were all kind of checked all the boxes. Um, the the soldiers were using halberds and a couple of other weapons that were culturally accurate, historically accurate. and he found that i i would never have caught this and i'm and i'm learning but he said it's very common to see the japanese samurai sword in movies portraying portraying chinese history and he said there was none of that everything down to the armor to the hairstyles was was pretty accurate based on this kind of loose timeline that they gave another thing he pointed out was some of the the comments in the in the dialogue with the grandmother Kind of asking if her grandson or i guess he wasn't her grandson but her or her granddaughter and you know katie and C- and shang chi were dating and he said that felt as a chinese individual that felt very accurate very genuine that is something that would totally happen if i was very close to a female friend of mine and brought her over for dinner and i think while it may seem kind of micro i think those are the things that really sell these movies as cultural experiences and really diversify the mcu which is is on its way to diversifying i don't know if we're there yet um another point he made was was talking about those mythological creatures being portrayed accurately and and their symbolism being respected and then he also talked about how shang chi's kind of ultimate you know kind of his coming into his own as shang chi as as the martial artist as the warrior he dons his um, well, well, certainly modernized his symbolic and and recognizable kind of red dragon scale armor. And we've talked a little bit about the symbolism of of black and black clothing and white and white clothing. And it's interesting to note, kind of here to close out, that the red symbolizes happiness, vitality, and fire, which I think are very fitting for a character who is trying to find his place in his culture. And finds that and kind of comes into his own there in the third act. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just another way again showing not just embracing the Chinese culture but embracing the joy of his childhood too to a sense because he does talk so much about the pain of growing up and the fighting that he had to do and I think the red is again just him coming to basically get to know himself even better. I will say another thing off of this is we're kind of talking about the cultural aspects. Um, One thing that I love is we're talking about Shang-Chi specifically and his acceptance of this. I think overall the movie does a very good job of showing him um, embracing both cultures, the American side of it too. So you see him growing up in San Francisco and having that for the past 10 years. And he basically comes across just as you would expect any other, you don't picture him as some, 
kung fu master when you first meet him he just seems like a very relatable type of guy um and that's one thing that i know is i was investigating more in the comics isn't the case necessarily um in the most modern ones they've done that but in the previous runs he's definitely more of just kind of the kung fu artist and typical character so i like that they embrace that one thing that i wanted to just read really quick that i think is the perfect time to show this is just a couple panels from the comic that i like and it's he's sitting in his house um meeting with somebody from mi6 and basically tells the person they're speaking in chinese and he tells her your chinese is awful can we please converse in english is what 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 he says and she says Shang, no offense, Shang, no offense, but your English sounds like a fortune cookie. It's hard to take. You've been in the West for quite a while now. You know the language. Why don't you talk like that? And Shang-Chi's response is amazing. He says, I found that if I slow my cadence and use wise words, Westerners look at me rather than past me when I speak. So he has to embrace that Chinese culture more so people will take him seriously, which I think is interesting that he can't just be like an American kid growing up. He has to embrace that side of his Chinese culture even more. Almost over accentuate it. Yeah, that's interesting. That was a pretty, that was a pretty powerful scene. I wanted to mention something too. What was interesting was there was a, several panels um, done or polls done kind of asking Chinese people who they thought should be cast as Shang-Chi or what it was, uh, it was actually what they thought of Simu Liu and Aquafina being cast as the kind of the mains. And I think they asked a couple other questions. I was be blunt about it. I think Simu Liu is a super good looking dude. Um, and it was crazy to read that like they didn't think that uh, the majority didn't think that Simu Liu accurately represented like a good looking Chinese person. This was a this was a panel done of of Chinese people, and then they actually showed several other. They they were like, oh. We, who would you have cast is what they asked. And they showed several other very good looking people. And it was kind of interesting. The sociologist went through and he kind of broke down how Simu Liu and Aquafina were kind of the perfect representation of what this movie was going for with the modernization of Shang-Chi. Like you mentioned, um, he broke down, I can't remember their names, but they were, they were fairly prominent Chinese actors kind of roughly in the same age range. And it was like the first of which was, you know, his English wasn't good enough. And we're trying to portray a guy who moved to China when he was fit or moved from China to the San Francisco when he was 15 years old. His English is probably going to be flawless. The guy's like 31, right? Or I don't know how old they're supposed to be. They're pretty old. Um, so he's, you know, that was even when it comes to casting these roles, it's not cookie cutter. It's not super easy. And then another guy was his English was great. He had no fighting skills. And like we mentioned, Simu Liu looks the part, speaks the part, can also fight so again because he's did some stunt work before he actually broke into you know, kind of getting any real roles so i thought that was a fascinating it's not it's not super easy to bring this culture into mainstream media for a lot of reasons and it's going to be hard to impress kind of the culture that they're trying to represent and the um the third one was kind of a guy that actually spoke great english and could fight but he was like 43 years old so it would have been really hard to to portray, you know, a 20-something or 30-something Shang-Chi. So I thought that was a really interesting tidbit because not being a part of Chinese culture, I I would love to know how members of that culture viewed this movie. Did it did it succeed? Where did it fall short? Where could it have been improved? And I was very surprised to see that they actually, you know, a lot of people would have preferred other casting. So any thoughts on that? 
I think it was actually pretty cool. I had heard that when Marvel had announced that they wanted to do a Shang-Chi movie that he basically hit up Marvel and was just like, what's good? Let's talk. Like he took <laughs> total initiative um, and kind of, you know, grabbed the, the situation and and put it kind of in, in, he was in the driver's seat for sure. So I think that was pretty cool. Um, I think that, also kind of gives gives significance to the role as well um that he kind of like fought for it so and deservingly so yeah and one even even with the sorry even with shang chi having a relatively kind of racist history he said i want to represent this character on screen and like let's do it right you know i know the culture i know what's what's missing with his historical comic history let's 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 do it better. Yeah, one thing I always appreciate is when the actors are fans of what they're representing. And so similarly, if you look on like he has blogs about his Marvel theories and like where things are going moving forward. And he said it's been funny because they try to keep him out of conversations because he they don't want him to be the next Tom Holland. And so it's really funny because he's he's like, I'm just like you guys. Like if you listen to his interviews, he's like 10 years ago, five years ago, even I was sitting at the movie theater watching these movies, loving them. And he says, I remember being at the San Diego Comic-Con and they announced Eternals and you see Angelina Jolie on the stage and then they called and announced Shang-Chi and it was me on the stage. And it was like, I'm here on the same stage that Angelina Jolie was on. And so he's a very humble guy. I think he was a great cast choice. Um, I It's sad to see people rejecting that because I... Looking at him now, I think it was perfect. I liked Aquafina a lot too. Um, it's been interesting. I didn't realize there's a lot of people that don't like Aquafina that much. I like Aquafina in a lot of the movies I've seen. Some people have some issues with her same portrayal and everything. I personally like her role in pretty much everything I've seen. I thought she did a really good job in this, and I enjoy her presence in the movie. I think it's necessary. If if I could just comment really quick on the on the Aquafina or Joe, were you going to talk about Aquafina? I was just going to say, that's interesting, because I love her. I've yeah. loved her in everything she's been in. Like, I think she's ph- phenomenal. Yeah, and, and the sociologist, you know, I actually said don't watch it because it was 30 minutes, but I actually changed my mind completely. Like, you guys should totally listen, listen to it. You probably don't need the, the visual, so you can just listen. Um, he talked about how a couple of the other stereotypes that they that they busted with this movie, and again, we've pointed out that they wanted to bust a lot of the Wenwu stereotypes, the, the Fu Manchu stereotypes. But kind of expanding out of that even, he talked about this kind of over-characterization of Asian men as slender and not the Western ideal of being super muscular or super masculine. And he said, and I actually thought, my immediate thought was My Hero Academia, you've got All Might and Sir Nighteye. And the the author himself has confirmed that All Might is the depiction kind of of an over-stereotypical American, very loud, big smile, very, very muscular, blonde. And then Sir Nidai is the Japanese counterpart. How they view themselves in a lot of ways. Very slender, wears a suit and tie, even when he's fighting crime. Very, you know, very pragmatic, thinks out his actions. So that stereotype is even prevalent along, like, you know, Oriental culture within, within its own culture. And so to have Simu Liu be very muscular, even, you know, martial artists aren't always muscular. To have him be very muscular, to show that, in a not in a, you know gratuitous way just he takes his shirt off for that fight scene was kind of busting that one stereotype and then the other one that i wanted to mention in regard to aquafina is this this stereotype of 
And again, this is all from the Chinese sociologist uh, portraying this over portrayal of, of Asian women as being submissive and quiet and almost subservient. And they cast Aquafina. <laughs> I mean, can you think of anyone else, anyone less quiet? I mean, she is just a huge personality. So I think it's interesting. I think it's very interesting. I love that she was able to bust that stereotype. And I think it's very interesting, like you mentioned, that there's people that had that had problems with that, that maybe they didn't feel represented by her. There's just a lot. There's honestly, it's just it's an annoying phrase, but there's a lot to unpack here. There's so much good, good content. I think just as you were talking about that, it made me realize, like, just between obviously the United States and China and the Eastern and Western uh, societies. And so to create a movie that not only represents a culture respectfully, but in an entertaining manner that kind of merges and satisfies satisfies both sides. Like just thinking about that, it's like it that could easily get so complicated and you can get so lost in, in trying to decide, you know, well, what are we gonna do in this aspect or what should we do in this? And the more and more I think about it, especially with that kind of issue or I guess that kind of problem because I, I do think it is a problem because there's so many differences and being able to not only successfully do it but on the level that Shang Shi did for me it it makes it that much better of a movie in my eyes 100% agree it was they had this whole other kind of hurdle that they had to clear than your average movie your average movie doesn't have to worry about being culturally appropriate and appeasing you know an underrepresented community on screen and it would be difficult to do it and be a successful marvel movie with all of the stigma and kind of expectations that come with that i think anyway some awesome points in this section and i think i guess i close out by saying something that uh, i think commenting on what p said i think it's absolutely insane now that the actors, the new actors joining the MCU were literally just fans. of. It. I mean, it's been around so long now that, like, like you mentioned, Simu Liu went to the theaters just like we did to watch Tony Stark for the first time in 2008. And that is kind of mind-blowing and also makes me feel old. <laughs> um, but I think his past is really cool, like you mentioned. He was, you know, he was, in a, he got a degree as an accountant by his own admission, was a terrible accountant, got fired, started doing some acting work, did some stock photos, which have now reached every corner <laughs> of the internet. He swears he did one stock photo shoot for 100 bucks, and there are literally hundreds and thousands of his photos in textbooks and random internet trainings that you have to do online. So I, I just, it feels like the everyman. I mean, I, I, I relate to him, you know, for reasons and i'm sure people of other cultures relate to them for different reasons but big fan um i want to close out here with shang chi's impact on the mcu so to recap those two post-credit scenes in case you missed them uh, after wong interrupts their dinner with friends he shang and katie are video conferencing essentially with captain marvel and a now human bruce banner with a sling on his right arm plenty, no. of, questions, plenty of questions there because uh, uh, we at Forge Comics really like Professor Hulk, so not super thrilled. And Wong then asks Shang, you know, approximately how long his father had the rings. Shang guesses around a thousand years, and, and Bruce confirms that based on their energy signature or some other kind of made-up statistic, 
that the rings are much older than that. And then that's pretty much it there. Any other thoughts on that first credit scene, Pete? Uh, it sounded like you had something to say. I have tried to study why the Russo brothers determined that the Hulk cannot heal from the Infinity War snap and from the gauntlet snap when he has the most powerful healing factor in all of Marvel comics. And they keep saying, well, the Infinity Gauntlet has irrevocable damage. Well, he's been reduced to bones in his comeback. So I, I just have a lot of gripes with that, that he still has a broken arm and is a sling. I think it's a fair point, but I think if he healed from that, it would undermine Tony Stark's death. I think the first question would be, why couldn't Hulk have just snapped again? I'll give it to you. But I, I still I, have issues I with it. I don't, I, want to see, I, don't, I don't want to see him as Mark Ruffalo anymore. <laughs> I, I'm fully on the, the taco delivery Professor <laughs> Hulk train. And then the final post credit scene, uh, Petey, why don't you tell us about that one? So this one, going back to our point earlier about the two armies fighting together, it makes sense now um, with Shang-Chi's sister coming in and basically taking over the empire. And I love this because their relationship is very contentious. They fight together, they work together, but there still is some, there's some working out that they have to do. And she even says in the beginning, she says, basically, if I can't have my father's empire, I'll make my own. So the minute that opportunity comes up that she can rule the empire, of course, she's going to take it. Um, I loved it. I think it shows her, um, I'm just going to say it. She's such a badass in this scene. Like when she takes over the the whole 10 rings while they were zooming out over the compound and you see the graffiti and you see kind of just the pan out of the whole scene and them fighting and training. Uh, it just is going to be a very different movie for the second one. It's very different 10 rings with her leading it. And I'm curious to see her probably take over the underground in a very different light. Uh, and possibly be the main villain of Shang-Chi 2. So there's a lot of working out that has to be done between the two. And as we read in the comics, he and his sister, who I'm guessing they're portraying, it's not quite clear which one, but a given, I guess, that it is Shi Ling. Um, she kind of portrays a few different of his characters, but it'll be interesting to see what they do with that conflict between the two of them. Yeah, and I think I think they did a really good job of setting up a sequel. I mean, there's clearly enough questions to answer already whether uh, i will be curious and i want to get your thoughts on this whether the the rings are dealt with in a sequel or if they're dealt with in dr strange's sequel or the eternals where do you guys think the rings pop up next as far as exploring their origin uh i think the obvious answer is eternals for the origin um but i do think that the kind of risk, I guess, that comes with using those rings will come up in a sequel. I think the origin of the rings is going to be explored probably more in the sequel than in the other movies. I think they're trying to shy away from the fact that 10 different items, I mean, in the comics, they're basically, they're rings for fingers, and they're trying to shy away from that so that they don't seem as close to the Infinity Gauntlet. So that's kind of why they went with the bracelets. So I think they're going to try to make it so they're not as defined and probably not as big of a deal in the overall scheme of things. Maybe they have ties to the Eternals and to the Celestials, but I don't see them being like a huge deal for the whole MCU. That's a great point. And also uh, the rings being in the form of bracers contributes to a 
very well-known martial arts style that was used in China over, cool. you know, at least I don't know what it was called, but I think that was a really cool way to take Not them from being, again, like you said, too similar to the Infinity Stones to also being culturally appropriate. Again, just another kind of feather in the cap of how accurate this movie was and, and the epiphany that I just had when you were talking again about the Eternals potentially creating the rings is we haven't seen a lot from the Eternals trailer but we know that they only get involved when deviants are involved. And can you tell me with a hundred percent certainty that that soul eating mega dragon <laughs> didn't at least partially look like a deviant? Hmm. I'll give it to you. All right. New, I'm calling my shot, new shot thingy. That was a deviant. The rings were created by the Eternals from some dead Eternal. That would be so sick i'll give it to you so i want this one to be right anyway that would be really cool um i think that'd be a really cool way to tie this into the next movie but like you guys mentioned if they're not a huge part of the mcu i'm not super upset about it either because i think it does take him away from the streets which i thought of you pete when i first saw the post credit scene with shalene my first thought when she was training her movie of ninjas was this looks a lot like you know kind of the vibe that the hand gives off yeah. And I wouldn't be opposed to just watching Shang-Chi throw down with an army of ninjas because he doesn't agree with his <laughs> That would be really cool. And give me Daredevil, just somehow. I don't care how. Just yes, put him in there. Please. <laughs> Shang-Chi oh. and Daredevil, a crossover. Any day. <laughs> really?